0: I think I forgot to talk about the Adamic Covenant. So basically, there are seven covenants in the Bible that God is going to make with humanity. And the first one is the Adamic, the second is the Noaic, and the third is the Abrahamic, the fourth is the Mosaic, the fifth is the Land Covenant, and the sixth is the Davidic Covenant, and the seventh, which is the number of completion, is the New Covenant that Christ is going to make. And so all these covenants are basically God binding himself to us in a relationship. And we talked about how he is first and foremost foremost, a loving covenantal God. But the first covenant he makes with humanity is the Adamic covenant, basically the covenant with Adam. Now, this covenant is not specifically mentioned in the Bible. um, Where with all the other covenants, God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. He doesn't say that with the Adamic covenant. But it's kind of implied, and it's implied in two ways. One, he's blessing them with these certain things where they have a relationship with him, and when they sin, they lose all those things, which suggests some kind of a covenant was made, and it's now broken, and they're losing it. Second, when we get to chapter 9 of Genesis, when God makes the covenant of the Noahic covenant with them, he says, I am renewing my covenant. Um, or ratifying it. And so there implies that there was a covenant before the Noah Covenant. And there's only about five chapters before that. So the reality is some scholars deny this covenant. But I don't get why. It's not like you lose anything or gain anything. Um, but basically this covenant is where God says there's always blessings for both parties in this covenant. So they're, in a marriage covenant, I am required to do things. And she is required to do things. My requirements become her blessings and her requirements become my blessings. And so the Adamic covenant, God basically says, if you don't eat of the tree and if you are fruitful and multiply, then you will get to rule and subdue and you will get to dwell with me in the garden. That's the deal. Okay, and so they both have requirements in this. Now, obviously the covenant is conditional. Conditional means that if, then I... If you don't, then I will not. It can be broken. So one of the only covenants that's really, well, that in the Mosaic covenants, it's, that's conditional. Most of them are condi- unconditional. We know that because when they break the covenant, they're kicked out of the garden, and they lose the right to rule and subdue, which you are going to see that with the fact that God is not going to repeat that in the New White Covenant and just tell your cat to come here, and when he doesn't, you've been reminded or you're last to write this ruling to do. So that's the covenant. Now there's a sign for every covenant, like in a marriage covenant, that's the wedding ring. Something that you can't see a covenant, it's a relationship. So there's something physical and tangible that becomes a symbol to remind you of that intangible in relational covenant that you have. And for them it's a tree of life. And so just like if you were married and you're no longer married, you would remove your wedding ring. When their covenant is broken, they lose the sign of the covenant, and they're cut off from the tree. And so there's no more of that reminder of life, the tree of life that they have with God. And so this is the first covenant that God makes with Adam and Eve, with all of humanity. And this covenant is going to be broken tonight in chapter 3. And what's really important for you to understand is that this covenant does exist, because as we talked about last week, everything is about getting back to the garden, Everything is about restoring the Adamic covenant. And so basically the whole point of Revelation is when the kingdom of God comes down to earth, we're back in the garden, and once again, we will be dwelling with God. We will be fruitful and multiplying. We will have the right to dwell with him in the garden, and there will be two trees of life um, life, um, in that garden, emphasizing the permanence of this covenant, the unconditionality of it. And so that is what we're moving towards. Well, well, that's what God's moving towards and bringing us towards. So with that, we're in Genesis chapter 3. And here's where everything is lost. Now, this is where sin is going to come into the picture. And this is going to be radically different, because remember, in all the pagan accounts, sin is the result of, well, they wouldn't call it sin, but suffering, pain, destruction, Everything that is wrong with the world, evil, chaos, is a result of the gods. Um, And not really that they brought it into the world, it's just that it's always existed and the gods came out of it and they've never really been able to deal with it. They can suppress it at times, but they've never been able to remove it. And so the gods are unable to deal with this, where with Yahweh, everything is good when he creates. He has, we talked about this in the creation account, there really is no evil and chaos. There's just disorder, and then he brings order to things. So there is no evil or chaos that he has to battle and destroy to begin with. There's just the disorder that does not allow for life, and then he orders everything. Therefore, chapter 3 becomes the explanation of why is there so much suffering and evil in the world. Well, it's not the inability of God to battle in an evil and chaos. It's not the fact that he wasn't able to suppress. It's not the fact that it's coexistence. It's, it's us. It's us. And one of the things that's very important to understand is how highly relational this sin is. Um, This is a direct violation against God and their relationship with Him. The, The command is find your source of life and wisdom in me. And they choose to go somewhere else, which means they have become adulterers. They've gone somewhere else for their source of life, they've gone somewhere else for their source of wisdom. Therefore, their sin is a, a, a sin, a relational sin against Him. Which means, though feeding the poor and educating people and fixing economies and all that kind of stuff are also important, and we're called to that as the image of God, those cannot fix the problem. If the problem is a sin, a violation of our relationship with God then the only thing that can fix that problem is a restoration back to that God. And those are all things that we should be pursuing because that's the way we demonstrate our love and that's how we redeem and expand the garden. But ultimately, those are to bring people to Christ. And so the thing that you must understand is that the world will scream education, economic reforms, feeding the hungry, that kind of stuff and they wonder why nothing changes. And the reality is the only thing that can be fixed the broken relationship is to reconcile the broken relationship. And that's why throughout all the Bible, God is constantly calling us to reconciliation with God. And so that's why it's really big when you get to Romans and first Peter is when he says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. And that's the only solution. And so that's important to understand of how highly relational this chapter is going to become. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more shrewd than any of the wild animals that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, is it really true that God said you must not eat from any tree of the orchard? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit from the trees of the orchard, but concerning the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the orchard, God said you must not eat from it. And you must not touch it or else you will die. The serpent said to the woman, sure, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like the divine beings who know good and evil. When the woman saw the tree produced fruit and was good for food, was attractive to the eye and was desirable for making one wise. She took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. We are first introduced to the serpent. Now, I know we believe that the serpent is Satan, but nowhere does the Bible say that. Now, you have to understand something. There is no concept of Satan in the First Testament. I'm not saying he doesn't exist. In fact, when you get to the Second Testament, the Bible makes it very clear that Satan has existed from the beginning of creation, that he is one of God's creations, that he is the king or the ruler or the prince of this air. He is the head of all the powers and the principalities, and he is directly opposed to us. But the First Testament doesn't have a concept of him. Ah, that's not Satan that we know of. It might be. The Hebrew never, ever, ever talks about Satan. The only time you ever see this word Satan is, in the Hebrew, it's the Satan. Okay, and the Satan is just the Hebrew word for the adversary. And that cannot be seen as a personal name, because in Hebrew, personal names don't begin with an article. Okay, so you don't call them the Bob. Okay, the Jim. In English, it's just Jim, Bob. Okay? It's, it's so personal names don't have the article before it. So the minute you put the article before it, it becomes just a noun, a descriptor. So it just tells us that on that day the angels were there and they presented the sons of God, presented themselves before God, and the Satan was also there. Now what's very interesting is that God is sometimes called the Satan. And if you think that the Satan is always Satan, well then that's really going to jack up your theology. Because when we get to Chronicles, we're told that the Satan incited David to take a census. And then in Kings, we're told that God made David take a census. The, the Satan is used of humans. Okay, there's everyday normal humans are just called the Satan because anybody can be our adversary. And sometimes God is our adversary when we're sinning against him and rebellion. He's certainly the adversary of the Canaanites. He's certainly the adversary of Israel at times. <clears throat> so <clears throat> the word Satan doesn't ever really appear as a, a name until we get to the first, t- Second Testament. The Second Testament becomes very clear that this is no longer a descriptor. It's an actual title and a personal name, well, as personal as we know, of a very specific being. But what I'm trying to do is not I'm not denying the existence of Satan, And I'm not saying everything that you know about Satan is true. It's just not from the First Testament. And I emphasize that because I want us to understand that we need to be reading this like a Jew. And how would they be seeing this? So, is it Satan behind the serpent? Don't know. Okay, I have no idea. And I could say yes because I can make an assumption based on all this theology. But that would be me saying it, not the Bible directly. What we do know is it's the serpent, and it's more crafty than all of the wild animals that God made. So first and foremost, we're being told that this is not a supernatural being. This is a creature of the animal kingdom that God made, period. Is there a demonic power behind him? Don't know. Now, this is where you're going to start getting really frustrated with the Bible, Because in Sunday school class and at church, we're very used to, as Americans, wanting to know everything by filling in all the gaps with all of our assumptions. And we make all these assumptions, and we fill in all the gaps because, God forbid, we not know something about the Bible, because we can figure it out, doggone it, if we just study hard enough. The problem is the Bible doesn't answer all of our questions. It's not interested in that. It leaves a lot of gaps open. So here's the question. Even if this truly is Satan, How did the serpent become corrupt? When did Satan corrupt the serpent? Did he possess it, or is he just controlling it? Or did he just so thoroughly corrupt the serpent, the serpent's evil on his own? There's so many questions we don't have. Answer, all we know is that the serpent was originally good, because God said everything he made was good, and we're told that this serpent is one of God's creatures of the animal kingdom, and now it's corrupted. How did it become corrupted? We don't know. How does it know so much about the command? Has it been listening to the conversations of Adam and Eve and God? Don't know. How long has it been there? How many conversations have been there? How in the world can a serpent talk? Don't know. Okay? Now, we know that that's not surprising because what's very interesting is the donkey talks to Balaam when you get the numbers, and you know what's the most blind part, blind, mind-blowing part of that story? Balaam is not shocked. Like, if an animal talked to us, we'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm hallucinating. What did I just take? But he just starts talking back to it. And if you read in ancient literature, animals actually talk in magical documents, and humans just kind of talk back without being surprised. It's not an uncommon thing. Now, we would say, well, yeah, there's probably a demonic presence there. But that's an assumption. There's so much we don't know. All we know is that this is a serpent that God created. Now he's corrupt. He has some knowledge of the commands, but knows his knowledge is not complete. Now, is it that his knowledge is lacking? Or is it that he knows, but he's intentionally twisting and deceiving things? The implication might be the latter because he's called shrewd. Now, you could then say when you get to Revelation, we're told that the serpent who is the dragon, who is the devil, who is Satan, you could say, there you go, it is the devil there. Well, once again, we don't know what Revelation is truly saying there. What we do know is that Revelation is saying that there is a real Satan who is opposing God and he's going to be thrown into a very real lake of fire, which we really have no idea what that is either. But what we do know is that he's being compared to the serpent. But is, is, is Revelation trying to make the point after all these thousands of years? Yes, he is the serpent, or because the serpent becomes the symbol of evil and chaos because of this passage, is he just saying that the devil was ultimately behind evil and chaos, which the serpent is a symbol of evil and chaos? So is he saying it's just he is evil and chaos, or is he saying he really was the serpent in the garden? Don't know. I know that will frustrate some people, and it used to frustrate me me a lot until I read enough of the Bible that I just realized that pretty much happens in every single chapter of the Bible. So you just kind of get over it, and you kind of just settle into the mystery of God, and that what it really does is if you get rid of your assumptions, it focuses you on what God really wants you to know. Because a lot of times we spend too much time trying to fill in the gaps that we miss the point of what God, there's a reason he left things out of the story. Just like when I come home, I tell a very different story to my daughters of what my day was like than I do to my wife. Not because I'm lying to either one. It's just they're interested in different things. And I want to make a connection or a point to them on their level. And God is doing the same thing. So don't let the assumptions distract you from what God has revealed. And what he has revealed is their dialogue. That's what he's interested in. Not origin stories, but what are they saying? That's what God focuses on. And you know that's important because dialogue very rarely shows up in the Bible. If you really read through the Bible, pay attention to how very not how not often um, people talk. So when you get like this long, a whole paragraph of conversation, that's God's way of saying, pay attention, pay attention. This doesn't happen a lot. Okay, and so that's what he's interested in. So, we come to the serpent. And the first thing the serpent says, is it really true that God said, you must not eat from any tree of the orchard? Now, the first thing we're told is, he doesn't use the word Yahweh. Because for the serpent, Yahweh is not a relational God who loves you. It's God who's keeping something away from you. And that's the picture he's trying to present. And so he uses the word God, Elohim. Is it really true? Now the first thing he does is he denies the goodness of God. He he makes God more restrictive. Is it true that you're not allowed to eat of any tree? Is that what God said? God said you may freely eat of all trees except for just that one. The serpent gets her to focus on what she doesn't have. And he makes the what she doesn't have seem like it's a whole lot more than what it really is. That's exactly what the demonic world does to us today. Okay? The, 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 one of the quickest ways to fall into a, a God is not trustworthy is to stop being thankful and gracious about all the things that you have. And so he gets her to focus on that restrictive character of God. She then replies and says, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the orchard, but concerning the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the orchard, God said you must not eat of it, or you would touch it, or else you will die. Now, she really jacks up the command a lot here. Okay, there's major revision going on here. Now, you might think, oh, but these things are so little and small. But when they begin to add up, we have a completely different God in mind. So the first thing that she does, is she left out the word awe from when she says the blessings. So she doesn't say we can eat from all the trees. She focuses on the restriction as well. And so that's her big, first big mistake. The second is she leaves out the word freely. So she once again makes it even more restrictive by leaving out the freely can eat and just say, well, we can't eat or we can only eat from that. And so the freely gets rid of that, um, that, that free will, that, uh, that blessing that God has given her. Third, she changes the word surely to lest. Now, that makes the, the consequences less. Because now she's not saying you will surely die. She's saying lest you might die. It implies that you might, you might not. I mean, that's kind of scary. You might die playing Russian roulette. But you might not. Now, none of us really want to go there, but you know there are some people who are willing just to see. So this surely implies you will die, period. Don't risk it. So she then also not only makes God seem restrictive in his blessings, she makes God seem restrictive in his judgments, that he's not so sure there. And then fourth, she adds that you're not even allowed to touch it which again makes God even more restrictive because he never said touch. Now, we don't know. It's obviously, we know that she wasn't there when God first gave the command. So here's another question we don't know. Did God repeat the command to her later after she was created and she didn't listen well or remember well? Or did God only say it to Adam before she was created and it was Adam's responsibility to communicate to her and he didn't communicate it well or she didn't hear it well? Don't know. Either way, it's not being repeated well. And so she, now it could be that Adam has kind of put a buffer zone around her. So like when I have these, my kids and I don't want them to be in the street, I might say, don't go past the sidewalk. Now there's not anything technically dangerous about going into that grass between the sidewalk and the street, but the grass becomes a buffer zone because I know they're gonna disobey me. I know they're gonna push the envelope. Or I might know, they know that they might just be oblivious and lose control and go slightly past the sidewalk. So now I have a buffer zone where it allows them to still be safe if they disobey me. That's fine. Maybe Adam said, you know what, just to be safe, let's not touch it. And there's nothing wrong with that. The problem becomes that she assigns that to God. That is not like we're not allowed to eat of this, but we decided not to touch it just to be safe. She says, God said don't touch it. And that's when you get in problems because that's what the Pharisees did. When God said don't work and they said, oh, and God also said you're not allowed to tie two knots because two knots is work but one knot's not. Well, no, no, God didn't say that. You did. Now, I understand that you're trying to protect people from violating the law of do not work, but that's not what God said. And then what begins to happen is your laws become equal to God's laws. And then you start blurring the line between you and God. And so it seems very innocent, but it becomes very dangerous when you don't remember who said what. And that's what she's doing here. There's nothing wrong with extra rules as long as you acknowledge that these are my rules that I've put on us in order to protect us, but I'm not assigning these rules to God. Because you don't want to blur the line between you and God on that one. So that by the time you get done with this conversation... It's interesting how much they're talking about God, but the God that they're talking about is not the God of Yahweh. He's restrictive. He's not follow through on his judgments. He's not relational. And he's a fun killer. And that's the God that they're talking about. You have to realize that atheists in the world are like less than 1%. They don't even make it over 1% in the Western world let alone the entire world. Which shows you that to get people to deny the existence of God after thousands of years of humans have been around is an incredibly difficult task, even for a very powerful demonic realm. But what you will find is that most people don't trust the character of God. God is not capable. God is not good. God is not love. God is not there for me. God is corrupt. In the Eastern world, a lot of spirits that people talk to acknowledge the existence of an all powerful God that is more powerful than them, but they tell you that that God is evil and mean. And in Venezuela, they tell you that God eats your children. And that, yes, they as spirits might be weaker and inferior to that God, but they love you and they'll take care of you. And well, if we can team up together, we can protect ourselves from that God. Most of the time, the devil and the world does not get you to deny the existence of God. They get you to deny the trustworthiness, the love, the character of God. And so notice the first thing he does, he denies the consequences. You're not going to die. He questions the command first. He gets her to not understand what God has clearly communicated. And when you don't remember or know or understand the words of God, then you're pretty much lost after that. Everything's just downhill. The second thing he comes back on is, You will not die. He just outright denies the consequences. Now, in some ways, one could say he was right because they did not like they ate of the apple and had a heart attack and died. But if you understand death as separation, then yes, they did immediately die. And then because they were separated from God, eventually their body deteriorated and died as well. Okay, you can stop taking care of your car, and it won't die immediately, but eventually it will die, and it will die a horrible death. And so the reality is they did die, and they're on their way to death. The third thing he does is he questions the character of God. So then he turns around and he says, God is keeping something from you. He questions the character of God. He's not trustworthy. You can't trust him. He knows that if you do this, you'll become like him, and he doesn't want that. Now, here's the irony of all. What is the serpent? He, the fourth one he does is he then offers them their own divinity. Eat of the fruit, and your eyes will be opened up, and you'll realize you're like the gods. Now, a lot of translations might say God singular, but it's actually Elohim plural. The implication is you're going to be like all those other spiritual beings, the angels, God. You're going you're gonna to be powerful and mighty like them. So she must have some concept of the angels in some way out there. So she, now, she offers him basically to her to take control of her own life. And you, she may not really truly believe that she is a god. But she will begin to operate as a god when she decides that what I want is all that matters. Control. And those are the four things that he does. Denies the con- Questions the command. Denies the consequences. Questions the character of God. And then offers you to be in complete control of your own life. If you just do your own thing. Follow your heart. Have it your way. And your I-Universe. Every single commercial television show you turn on. The demonic world... <laughs> or those who have been corrupted and they're now operating on their own devices, they pretty much do those four things all the time. Your own heart does that to you. Even if there was no demons, your heart would do that to you. And the reason they haven't changed their tactics after thousands of years is because it works. If you think about every time that you sin, it all comes down to the fact that you are questioning the command. Did God really say that like, Adultery was really that bad. That gossiping was bad. I mean, come on, it is the truth, and people should know this. (laughs) Right? You begin to question if that really is something that is not biblical or God doesn't want you to do. And then you begin to deny the consequences. Oh, it won't happen to me. Only stupid people get caught, and I'm not stupid. I mean, how many testimonies do we bring in Year after, year after year after year to year to people about what drugs do. I mean, you've got, no offense, but you've got to be a complete idiot to not know what drugs do to you in this day and age. Yet it won't happen to me. And then we think God doesn't love me. Because if he did, this wouldn't be happened to me. Or I would have more friends. Or I wouldn't feel so rejected. Or I wouldn't be suffering in pain like this. Or maybe God's not even powerful enough to take care of this. Isn't that the biggest complaint of most people in the world? God is either not capable or God is not loving enough. And then we finally just decide, I'm going to do it my way. And even as Christians, we do that. You may say that you believe that God is in control and that he loves you, but the fact that you immediately don't pray first and you start trying to fix it on your own and then you begin to realize, yeah, I should have probably prayed about that, is you saying, I'm God of my own life. And so this is what he invokes here. How does he know to do this? We don't know. But he does. Because he is the most shrewd of all the animals. Now the word shrewd can be a good thing. It's the same root word connected to wisdom. And in some contexts, wisdom, the word is used in a very positive sense. But in other senses, it can be used in a very negative sense when you're using your wisdom to deceive people. And so that word can take a positive or a negative word. And there's a pun here, too, because the word shrewd in Hebrew sounds a lot like the word naked. So in their nakedness, his shrewdness is going to take advantage of their innocence and their vulnerability. He's going to manipulate their innocence. And that's what he does. And so he offers them divinity. Now, what's interesting is this is at the core of everything throughout all of humanity now. Because if you go to every religion, Hinduism, you're, you're trying to actually open up your third eye so that you'll see the universe for the way that it really truly is and you'll have all this secret knowledge and divine information that allow you to become your own god. Mormonism is about you becoming your own god. Atheism is you killed God so you must be now your own god. Buddhism, God is irrelevant. Does God exist? Buddha didn't really care. What's in the afterlife? Don't really know. All I'm going to do is teach you how to take control of your own life. Okay? You blaze your own trail. Every religion comes down to you achieving knowledge so that you can be in control of everything. And then really pay attention to your TV shows and movies and commercials of how often you're being told to follow your heart. Just do it. Have it your way. Over and over and over again. The newest Disney cartoon, I think it is, Ballerina or a Leap. Like, that's the theme, follow your heart, follow your heart. They just keep saying it over and over again. Pay attention to how often Disney says that in all their movies. Yet, the Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man in his heart, but leads to destruction and death. James says the desire of man leads to sin, and sin leads to death. The Bible doesn't have a lot of good things to say about your heart. In fact, it's called a heart of stone that will always do evil. And unless the Holy Spirit circumcises your heart, you'll never be able to do anything good or desire anything good. So this is at the core of our problem. So notice that when she looks at the fruit, she decides that it's attractive. She decides that it'll taste good and she decides that it'll give her knowledge. That is their first sin. Before they've really even taken a bite of the fruit. And by the way, we have no idea what fruit this is. No idea. It could not even exist anymore for all we know, which probably is likely. But she decides that she's going to eat, and this comes the sin of what I talked about last week autonomy. When she decides what right and wrong is, when she decides what is good, when she decides what is beneficial, And she says, you, Yahweh, are wrong. I'm right. I'm going to follow my heart. And that's the core of sin. That's the core of sin. Which then we basically pride. Because autonomy is a little more complicated. We have to actually explain that word to people. But pride. Pride. But I think autonomy is so much better because pride just kind of paints pictures of arrogance. Maybe a little bit better I mean, when we use the word pride in a positive sense, like I'm proud of my children, or I'm proud of what you did, okay? But autonomy, self-law, self-governing, self-right and wrong, is far more gets at the core of what our sin is, of what our problem is. And so she eats of it. Now, I know we're used to the story, I mean, this is probably one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible, but... And then so unfortunately we've lost the the devastating cosmic earthquake significance of this event because this is just our world every single day. And we've heard this story so much. But you have to realize how earth-shattering that this is. So earth-shattering that when we get to the judgments, the judgments are like life altering. And it, I mean, it's our life every single day. But to go from the garden to what we have now, is devastating. All because she just made a choice. And that's where the real sin is. The minute she said in her heart, I'm right, that becomes the sin. The fruit just puts action to what she already wants. This is why, here's the real kicker of what the definition of sin is. Sin is not disobeying God necessarily. Sin is going contrary to the will of God. Now, what does that mean? Why is sin going contrary to the will of God different than sin as disobeying what is wrong? Because whatever God says automatically becomes wrong. Okay, God didn't create evil. God just says this is right and everything else just kind of becomes a result of that. But this is the point that Paul kind of jumps on with the meat sacrifice to idols. Let's just take something like Eating meat, sacrifice to idols. Paul makes it very clear that that's not a sin to eat that. But if you think in your mind that God said that that's not right, and you choose to do it anyways, you have sinned. Now, technically, you haven't violated the command of God because God never said, don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols. Right? If, if you think wearing blue shoes is a sin, And you think that God really, truly has something against the color blue. Or you think that wearing, cutting your hair short as a woman is a sin. And you think that God really has something against that. Or wearing anything not a dress. Anything like that. If you think going to those parties were a sin, anything that God hasn't directly said this is a sin, but you choose to do it anyways, you have sinned. Why? Because you believe that God is against that, and you chose to do something anyways. Because the real heart of sin is, I think God is against this, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyways. And you can argue all you want. Well, technically, I got lucky because God really wasn't against that. Therefore, I haven't sinned. No, because sin is autonomy. It's not behaviorism. It's not right and wrong at its core. It's when I decide that I want to do something different than what God has said. And whether I think correctly about what God commands or not, the fact that I chose to go against that is all that matters. That is sin. Which means sin is not rules. Sin is not behaviorism. Sin is your heart. Sin is at the heart. You can make up totally stupid, random sins. Don't wear blue. Don't wear boots. All these random things. And you're still going to have kids who are going to say, or adults to say, I'm going to do it anyways. They haven't technically done anything wrong in a behavioristic sense. What they've done wrong is they've said, I don't care. I'm going to do my own thing. And that's sin. And that's why changing behaviors and rules and all that kind of stuff will never, ever change. Your circumstances. What changes is when your heart is circumcised by the Holy Spirit and actually begins to want to say, I care about what God wants. And I'm going to try to pursue what God wants because it matters to me. That's the only thing that will change. That was the only thing that will change your circumstances. And so that is at the core here. So this is, and this is so important too, because Paul's gonna make the point that sin and righteousness existed before the law, therefore, sin and righteousness exists after the law. And this is one a huge argument the Torah is gonna make. See, Paul's not coming up with this new idea of: look, Abraham didn't have the law and he was able to have faith and be saved pre-law. That's not a brand new idea with Paul. That's the argument that the Torah is making. At the very core of the Torah is the law is actually going to make them want to sin even more not that because the law is bad but because the minute we're told more and more and more and more what we can't do and what we should do our heart wants to do the opposite even more and more and more and more and so this is why you must understand it has nothing to do with rules it has nothing to do with behaviorism at the core it's just I want what I want and who cares what it does to God and who cares what it does to you and who cares what it does to creation I want what I want. Does that make sense? Questions? Then she turns and gives it to her husband. More questions that we don't have answers to. Has he been there all along? Why hasn't he said anything? How long has this conversation been going on? I mean, if it's just this one paragraph, man, she was easily convinced. Okay? Now, the implication is that he has been there the entire time because the whole idea that she then turned to him and handed it to him has the idea that he's been there the entire time, which, which is then passiveness on his part. And so they eat and their eyes are open. Now, notice how it does give them wisdom. We talked about this last week. Their eyes are opened up and they do gain a wisdom and even God acknowledges that they gained a wisdom. But notice now in this wisdom, they realize that they're naked. And they're filled with shame. Because now there's this crap in their lives that is disgusting and ugly and not right. And the first thing they begin to do is hide themselves. Put up facades. And that's what we do. There might be one person in your life that you'll ever completely share yourself 100% with but there will always be something that we're not sharing, even if it's just the fact that I don't even know how to share it. And we'll always be living with this idea that we're not accepted. So notice the first thing they did was they tried to cover their own sin. Now their first mistake in all of this is they never went to God. And this is a sin that you're going to see emphasized over and over and over again in the Bible is that Why didn't they, if they have this God that has given them so much and is walking with them in a relationship, and he says one thing, and the serpent comes in and says something contrary, to give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe they don't really know who to trust or believe. We don't know what their understanding is. But why do they never go to God and bring the serpent and God together and say, what's going on here? And that was their first mistake, was to never bring him in the conversation, never ask for clarification, never seek him out. The one that I probably guarantee that no matter how long the serpent has been there, I guarantee you that God has been a better companion than the serpent has for however long it's been. And yet that doesn't matter. Just like to us, no matter what God's track record is in our life, we still keep going to those pathetic things, even if it's ourselves. So once they sin, the first thing they do is they try to cover on their own. They don't go to God because remember, now they're convinced that God is keeping things from them and God is not trustworthy. So they don't go to him. They run and they hide and notice that it's God that pursues them. They don't pursue God. God chases them down because he's the one that values the relationship. And so they hide. They try to cover their own sins. And it's not a very good covering either.